HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today I'm here with Emma Krejci from the Worker Justice Center of New York, who's joining us uh, remotely, and Suzanne Adley from the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, um... Both of you work uh, to improve wages and working conditions for food workers, including agricultural workers. Um, and I'm really excited about this episode because we, so far this season, we've been talking to a lot of farmers um, about a lot of issues facing farmers and um, talking to them, talking about them. And I've really been looking for an opportunity to talk, to talk more about farm workers. Um, so I'm really thrilled to, to get into this discussion. Um, and the impetus behind um, our conversation today was um, a recent report that was issued by Halal Elver, um, and she reports on the right to food for the UN. Um, and this report um, looks at agricultural workers around the globe. And so I was, uh, we've all sort of looked at the report, and I think the overarching theme is to call attention to a paradox, which is that 
while agricultural workers play this critical role in making sure people around the world are able to eat, um, they are, and this is a quote, among the most food insecure, facing formidable barriers to the realization of their own right to food, often working without labor and employment protections and under dangerous conditions. So we've got this kind of major paradox. Um, a lot of people talk about this. The people that are basically working in the fields to uh, get food to the rest of the world are not able to access food themselves a lot of the time. Um, is this something that you both see in your work uh, with agricultural workers? Um, Emma, do you want to jump in first? Sure, I can absolutely respond to that. And maybe just briefly, I can just explain a little bit about the work that we do in general. Um, so the Worker Justice Center of New York is a worker rights organization. We work throughout upstate New York. Um, and we, although we do work with low-wage workers outside of agriculture, our foc the focus of much of our programming is on agricultural workers. So we provide legal representation um, for labor and employment matters, as well as immigration assistance. And so, uh, and, and a lot of our outreach and education programming uh, is targeted uh, at agricultural workers because they are among the most vulnerable and uh, the least able to access uh, legal assistance and um, resources in general. As we'll discuss further, right. <laughs> uh, we are we also do engage in advocacy efforts to improve labor protections um, affecting agricultural workers and other wage workers. So, uh, in general, I would say my response to the report um, is that unfortunately none of it was surprising to me. Uh, you know, when we look at the barriers that are cited in this report as the major uh, sort of. Um, concerns regarding food access, we see things like uh, low wages, long working hours, lack of collective bargaining protections, informality in the workforce, um, lack of social protections, dangerous working conditions. All of these are things that we see day to day in our work right here in New York State. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I'd like to be able to say that the U.S. is doing better than the rest of the world, but I'm not, not entirely sure that's true. Right. And um, thanks for, for giving us some more uh, background on the Worker Justice Center. I, I meant to give you each an opportunity to talk about your organizations, and I just got really excited to talk about um, <laughs> no labor. Um, so, Suzanne, do you want to just quickly um, say what the Food Chain Workers Alliance does as well? Sure. So the Food Chain Workers Alliance is a coalition of 31 organizations. Um, some of them are unions. Some of them are advocacy organizations, but the large majority are worker centers that are either led by or organized alongside workers throughout the food supply chain. And that includes agricultural workers. We have several members that work with farm workers, including Emma's organization, mm. but it also includes processing. Um, what I mean by processing is like meat packing and um, poultry processing. Um, it also includes distribution, like truck drivers mm -hmm. and um Warehouse workers, it includes retail, like grocery store, um, street vendors, and includes restaurant workers as well. Mm. Um, and our members, our member organizations exist throughout the United States. And now also we have two member organizations in Canada. Mm. Um, and the Food Chain Workers Alliance was created um, by our, mem our member organizations, our leading member organizations in 2009. Um, as a strategy for these different 
food worker organizations to work together to address both labor laws that impact food workers and to address um, issues within the food system to improve the power of all food workers to um, improve their conditions. Right. And is food insecurity one of the issues that you work on? Absolutely. And um, and it, it does, it is sort of a, um, a striking paradox um, that agricultural workers grow the food that they can't afford to eat, mm. but food insecurity impacts all of the workers that I, that I mentioned. Right. Um, and, you know, there's structural reasons for that, the um, lack of voice that they have, um, the lack of rights that they have to organize um, so that they could advocate for higher wages, um, and better working conditions, and um, it's it's all connected to that. Um, and you know, we um, we are part of several different um, coalitions, and and one in particular called the Good Food for All Coalition uh, works around uh, the Farm Bill, and the Farm Bill is. Um, not a bill I actually really <laughs> thought about a lot before right. I started working for the Food Chain Workers Alliance, but it actually administers programs like SNAP. And, um, you know, one thing about food workers is that of all industries, they have the highest percentage of workers who rely on public aid. Um, and so, you know, the farm bill's progress um, going forward is has become important to us uh, because so many food workers, including agricultural workers, depend on benefits like SNAP. Right. Well, and, and it's it's interesting. You both um, sort of hit on this idea that um, the report, it's the thing that struck me is it's about the right to food, but it's not about the, the report is actually not about food at all. It barely talks about food. It's about all these structural issues that you both brought up, like um, the lack of living wages, the lack of health care, um, dangerous working conditions um, in agriculture um, and you know, I think people, when we talk about food insecurity, we often don't make those connections, um, especially like in the, the charity world. It's often like, oh, people are hungry. Let's feed them. Right. But we don't talk about the systemic stuff. Um, but I feel like both of your organizations, the work that you do, you're kind of looking more at those systemic issues. Is that is that correct to say? I think so. Yes. Yeah. I absolutely think that's fair to say, and I'll just say that although our organization doesn't come at this issue through the lens of uh, food access, per se, I think all of these structural barriers barriers that we're talking about are barriers to access to all kinds of basic human needs Mm -hmm. um, in the agricultural workforce. So it's not just about access to food, it's about access to medical care, it's about access to any kind of basic need. you know, when you have all of these structural barriers in place, uh, you know, farm workers are among the working poor. And they're also dealing with, in, in you know, I can speak to New York at least, tremendous geographical isolation, lack of access to transportation, inadequate housing conditions, um, you know, in addition to all of these workplace uh, health and safety and labor condition concerns. So, you know, it's not, it is a bigger picture for sure. Um, but certainly these, these factors um, are are exactly what contribute to food insecurity as well as many other things. Right. And, and Emma, you, one of the other things the report brings up is that um, migrant workers, um, you know, they say in all regions all over the world tend to face um, more severe um, working conditions and, and um, social exclusion than other agricultural workers. Um, And I think, 
I, I think most of the workers that you work with at Worker Justice Center um, are migrant workers. Is that true in New York? Uh, it's absolutely a mix um, here in New York State. And, uh, you know, part of the problem of being socially marginalized is, and also working with an immigrant workforce uh, is that there really is not a tremendous amount of good data about working conditions or the agricultural workforce as a whole, um, but we absolutely do work with year-round agricultural workers as well as seasonal workers, some of whom are migrant and some of whom are, are not necessarily migrating across straight li- state lines but are working seasonally in agriculture. So I would say um, the folks that we deal with kind of run the gamut in terms of their employment arrangements. Um, you know, one of the major industries uh, in New York State is dairy, and those are year-round positions. And dairy workers are some of the workers that are facing the most precarious workplace conditions of any uh, agricultural workers. Migrant farm workers certainly face other types of challenges. Well, some are similar and some are different. Um, But in terms of legal protections, year-round dairy farm workers are actually some of the most vulnerable because they fall outside the jurisdiction of the agricultural... There's an Agricultural Worker Protection Act that is... um, applies to seasonal workers, but does not cover year-round workers. Um, And so there are issues around housing um, and health and safety that um, fall outside of, um, you know, uh, for whom dairy farm workers are not, you know, largely covered. So uh, I'd say different workforces facing different kinds of challenges, but a lot of similarities across the board. Right. Um, And while we're we're on this topic, so I know... um, you know, you can't really talk about um, agricultural labor without talking about um, immigration. And one of the um, big uh, discussions right now is related to guest worker programs. Um, and so the current administration and, and some farm groups are sort of arguing for expansions of these programs as a way to create legal pathways for workers to come to the U.S. Um, for agricultural work. And I think I think both of um, the organizations that you are a part of are opposed to um, the expansion of these guest worker programs. Can you um, each talk about um, if, if that's true and if so, why? Uh, Suzanne, do you want to start out? or? Um, sure. Um, I'm, you know, I think that perhaps, um, you know, different members of our alliance have been addressing um, this question of guest workers, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps not necessarily in one uniform way. Um, And, you know, the way that sort of we see it holistically is that, you know, so guest workers are themselves vulnerable communities of people who migrate for the same reason that other um, who who come to work in the United States as guest workers um, for the same reasons why other workers migrate is the social economic conditions that are fueled, you know, by policies that very often originate in this country. Um, that is um, sort of pushing that, and mm-hmm. you know, and it's also because just like other migrant workers, guest workers also sort of fit in this cycle of capitalist exploitation, which I think you know often immigrants of all kinds or migrants of all kinds are um, kind of uh, targeted for. Um, and I think I would say that the guest worker program is a flawed one, and um, I. I 
I don't hear much discussion about necessarily wanting to continue that because it's not ideal. However, when guest workers do come um, to the United States to work, they become part of our community and their rights um, are just as important as any, anybody else's rights. And there are examples of guest workers who have organized for better conditions. I mean, um, they face the same sorts of conditions that we've begun to talk about. And in, in some cases, um, in, in some ways, they're probably a, a little bit more vulnerable and um, have less opportunities to uh, access power to protect themselves when they are working as guest workers. So mm. we also um, support any initiative that guest workers take on to organize for better conditions. And we've seen examples of that in places like Bellingham, Washington, and other places, not just in the food industry, but in other industries as well. Mm. Emma, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely agree with Suzanne's analysis of the vulnerability of guest workers. I would, what I would say is that I, I, you know, I believe, and we as an organization believe that guest worker programs, as they are currently, um, as they currently stand in the United States, do not serve the interests either of U.S.-born or U.S.-based domestic workers or foreign workers, right? Um, as Suzanne mentioned, guest workers face a number of um, additional vulnerabilities. Their work visas are tied to particular employers. What that means is that it's, there is very little incentive, um, although certainly we are seeing cases of guest workers organizing in places where there are no collective bargaining protections and where workers can simply not be invited back into the program the following year. Um, you know, there's, that's, that's effectively a blacklist, right? And mm-hmm. so there is a lot of for guest workers who decide to speak up. And for for that reason, we don't see it very often. We don't see guest workers coming forward very often to report labor abuses. Um, so even though there are some protections built into the guest worker program, they're very, very difficult to enforce because workers often don't report violations. Um, mm. And if they do, the they're very easily retaliated against. Um, is simply by not being, you know, invited back. Um, right. So mm-hmm. it, we have also seen that the guest worker programs are, um, you know, tied to human trafficking in many cases, unfortunately, because of the way that, um, you know, these kind of recruitment schemes play out in the home countries, uh, you know, kind of false promises laid out before these workers. Uh, unfortunately, that is obviously the extreme case, and it doesn't represent what's happening across the board with guest workers, um, but it, it reveals the vulnerabilities of uh, the workers and the flaws in the system. In the meantime, what we're seeing is that many agricultural employers are preferring guest workers to domestic uh, to the domestic mm. workforce because they find them more reliable, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, and we, in <laughs> fact, recently filed a lawsuit against a farm in western New York that was systematically displacing U.S.-born Puerto Rican workers in favor of guest workers. And that's not legal to do. Um, And, of course, you know, we would would agree with that guest workers, once employed in the U.S., their work work needs to be respected, their rights need to be respected, and and they deserve um, the same kinds of protections that all other workers should have. Um, But the fact of the matter is that employers are utilizing the guest worker program and the reason for that, uh, you know, increasingly utilizing those programs is because it's an easier workforce to control, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not good for anyone. <laughs> right. Uh, there, I agree. Is, there are some really good resources out there available um, 
about the guest worker program. The Southern Poverty Law Center has a really well-known support, a uh, really well-known report about um, the vulnerability that guest workers face in terms of trafficking. Uh, Farm Worker Justice has a has an excellent report called No Way to Treat a Guest um, that kind of outlined the risks uh, both to foreign workers coming in on a guest worker visa as well as the problems um, for U.S. workers. Right. Well, and when I say U.S. workers, I inc- I'm including immigrant workers that are residing currently in the U.S. Right. Well, and that's what I was just thinking, too, is that you're pointing out all these flaws within the guest worker program um, that affect those the people coming here on, as guest workers. But then and also it's sort of often presented as a solution to a shortage of ag labor. But it these programs do nothing to actually um, address the issues that workers here face right now who are, you know, who are immigrants or, you know, um, are already working here, have been working here for a long time and don't have access to the same rights as uh, people people born here, right? Right. And unfortunately, rather than addressing the systemic problems within um, agricultural employment, we see instead uh, efforts on the part of Congress to, you know, expand the guest worker program even further. I mentioned dairy farm workers previously in the uh, unsafe and very difficult working conditions they're facing, um, expanding guest worker programs into the dairy sector, which, of course, as I mentioned, are not seasonal positions, but year-round jobs is one of the you know, major efforts underway. Um, now, there's a lot of concerns about what that might uh, mean for the dairy industry, but there's a huge um, agricultural lobby that's pushing for the expansion of guest worker programs into dairy, into the dairy industry, which would deplace, displace a large number of the existing workforce, potentially. Huh. Um, okay, so we need to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, uh, we have a lot more to cover. Um, I know um, sort of access to collective bargaining rights has come up a bunch. Um, I think maybe we can start there. Um, we're just going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here with Emma Krejci from the Worker Justice Center and Suzanne Adley from Food Chain Workers Alliance, and we've been talking about agricultural labor. Um, So before the break, um, I think a couple times, actually, in different answers that you both gave to various questions, um, we sort of glossed over this idea that... um, farm workers often 
are barred from um, organizing. They don't have the right to collective bargaining like other workers. Um, for someone who has never heard this, doesn't doesn't know anything about this, why why is this a? I guess my question is why why aren't, why aren't farm workers um, given the same rights to organize? Suzanne, do you, or do you, whoever wants to jump in, <laughs> go ahead, Suzanne. Do you want to tackle this one? <laughs> well, um, you know when we talk about this. Um, to uh, folks like in different audiences and so on, we um, you know we talk about um, something called the National Labor Relations Act, which was um, a piece of legislation that emerged during the New Deal era. Okay, um, which um, even though you know there's been changes to it, it kind of was the the foundation for a lot of the basic labor laws. Um, that workers uh, receive today, but they were workers, they were workforces that were excluded um, from that legislation. And farm workers was one, domestic workers were another. And um, you know, and the reason that one of the major reasons why they were excluded is because these workforces were largely African American, um, and. Um, and so since that time, there's been no federal legis legislation that has um, emerged to um, really afford farm workers um, the same rights that other workers have under the, national, um, the NLRB or the National Labor Relations Act. Um, but there have been efforts to um, pass state legislation um, that would afford uh, farm workers those rights and mm. I think one of the more well-known was the United Farm Workers uh, movement right um, in California um, I'm based in New York where there are several organizations that have been um, trying uh, for at least a decade um, to pass two decades, two decades <laughs> <laughs> to pass um, legislation in New York State um, called the the fair labor stand of uh, Farm workers, Farm workers, fair, fair labor. labor, yes, and um, <laughs> you know, and one of one of the big obstacles to I think getting the kind of support that they need in Albany for that has been the efforts of one uh, big lobbying association called the Farm Bureau, uh, which um, the New York Farm Bureau or the the national. Well, they're part of okay um, national, and if you look closely at who and what the Farm Bureau is. Um, they hardly represent uh, the voice of actual uh, farm farm owners and, and, and especially uh, smaller farm owners, and rather they represent the interests of um, you know corporations, and um, they often you know receive funding from um, the GOP, and um, and you know this is their institution has been not the only sort of challenge to uh, passing legislation in New York, but one of the, one of the big ones. Um, and, you know, I can speak to what's been happening in New York. Mm. Um, I'm, I don't I know much about um, similar efforts in other states, okay. um, but there sort of might be some more information that we could look up. Got mm -hmm. it. Um, Emma, is uh, the Worker Justice Center involved in, in that effort as well? 
Yeah, so we absolutely support the passage of the farm worker fair labor practices here in New York, which would essentially uh, remove the exclusion of farm workers from these collect uh, from these labor protections. So essentially, what has happened is that um, in, in New York and in most of the country, the state laws essentially reflect the exclusion of farm workers um, from the uh, from FLISA, from the Far, uh, Fair Labor Practices Act. So in New York, um, we have attempted for many years to pass a bill that would remedy that for farm workers, domestic workers in the early 2000s won a bill of rights that addressed many of those exclusions um, for that workforce, but farm workers have not been as successful. Um, Mm -hmm. And so among the exclusions that farm workers, what we're talking about are those collective bargaining protections, which would allow, it's not just about forming a union, it's about any group of farm workers that go to their employer to ask for any kind of improvement in their working, uh, working conditions. That's what collective bargaining is. That's what concerted activity is. So, huh. um, you know, uh, it, this often gets overblown, you know, <laughs> in terms of uh, the concern that it would, ha- uh, that this would, you know, in the ways that, that, that uh, allowing farm workers to engage in collective bargaining might impact the agricultural industry. But we're talking about very basic labor protections here. Um, uh, besides uh, collective bargaining protections, we're also uh, the, the bill also seeks to address overtime pay, the right to a day of rest, some very very basic labor protections. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to legislation, however, I should add that we our organization is party to a lawsuit that was filed um, in 2016 against the state of New York, challenging the constitutionality of New York's labor law, because under the state constitution here in New York, workers all workers have have the right to organize and collectively bargain, mm. but the state labor law excludes farm workers. Huh. So, um, in 2016, a farm worker by the name of Crispin Hernandez, along with our organization and an organization, another member of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, the Worker Center of Central New York, filed suit against the state of New York, alleging essentially that the labor law is unconstitutional. Now, the interesting twist here is that both the governor, Andrew Cuomo, and the then-Attorney General, um, Eric Schneiderman, Mm. publicly agreed that that this exclusion conflicts with the Constitution. They essentially agreed not to defend the lawsuit, but the Farm Bureau, (laughs) uh, which Suzanne just spoke of, uh, petitioned to the court to intervene as a defendant in the lawsuit on behalf of their members. So uh, the court granted them that right to intervene. And um, unfortunately, in the first round uh, in, in the, the Supreme Court, which is the lower court here in New York State, ruled, um, you know, they first they allowed the, the farm viewer to intervene and then and then they 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 did not rule in our favor. But the um, the. Uh, the loss, the the appeal is now going to the appellate uh, court, and I should also mention that the uh, the the our representatives in that bring that lawsuit is the um, New York Civil Liberties Union. Okay. So this, the outcome of this uh, lawsuit, could really shift. Um, not just the labor law, but really shift the dynamics because when you don't have collective bargaining protections, any other kind of protections that you may have are very difficult to enforce, right? So we have kind of a dual problem of both weak legal protections and lack of enforcement mechanisms that are effective. And collective bargaining is really at the crux of it all because if you cannot speak up without fear of retaliation, without fear of losing your job, 
then there's no way to really actualize the rights that you may have on paper, right? Right. So does that directly impact your ability to um, get farm workers um, in New York to engage with the Worker Justice Center? Like, do you, on the ground, do you see, do you think that would really change things? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, we haven't spoke in too in depth about the degree to which um, our country's immigration system is also uh, prohibiting or at least inhibiting um, people from coming forward about their working conditions. Um, obviously, a large portion of the farm labor force is undocumented, so that's another major factor. Um, but collective bargaining is the other major factor. Right. Right. Um and and actually, um, one of the one of the other issues that you and I have talked about that I know you're working on a lot is also related to um, an issue that really affects um, undocumented workers a lot, which is access to driver's license um, licenses. It's hard to say that word <laughs> um, <laughs> in the plural. So um, this this is, I think, a, a really interesting issue. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the Worker Justice Center is doing related to um, helping workers access driver's licenses and why that's important for agricultural workers specifically? Sure. Yeah, so one of the campaigns uh, that we are focused on right now is a statewide campaign. Um, we are one member among many uh, working to change New York State's policy uh, in terms of access to driver's licenses for undocumented workers, un undocumented people in general. Um, and so there are currently 12 other states that um, have policies which allow undocumented people to access a driver's license. New York is not one of them. Um, and so what we we see this issue, although it's maybe not intuitively a worker rights issue, we see this issue as very much connected to the concerns around farm workers' access to basic services and their rights as workers um, because of the geographical isolation and the lack of any kind of public transportation infrastructure mm -hmm. in upstate New York. Workers are very dependent on their employers, and it really amplifies the power dynamic when an employer, you know, when, when, it, when a worker relies on their employer for um, rides to the grocery store, rides to the doctor, um, it, it, workers have a harder time uh, leaving to find other employment um, when they're, we, you know, in situations of violence, whether it's workplace violence or domestic violence among folks living on a farm, it makes it very, very difficult for people to have the access to the basically just freedom of movement, right? right. <laughs> um, so we do see it as a worker rights issue. And the other kind of dimension of this is the, the extent to which people, uh, people's limitation in terms of access to driver's licenses further exposes them to uh, risk of uh, detention and deportation. Many people don't think of New York as a border state because we're not on the southern border, but we are on the northern border. Right. And Border Patrol is extremely active in along our northern border. Um, within 100 miles of our border, there are there is active Border Patrol, um, uh, and we do see that people who uh, leave their – there was a very recent case of a, of a, of a leader um, in our driver's license campaign. He was uh, driving um, – it was his daughter's third birthday. He had left work. He'd gone to his, uh, to his daughter's third birthday celebration, 
he was stopped by local police. Um, he did not have a valid driver's license, and they called Border Patrol, and he was detained. Um, and now he's facing removal proceedings as a result. So uh, these are very, you know, he's a dairy farm worker, right? right. So these are very um, present realities for the workforce, in, the agricultural workforce in, in upstate New York, particularly along the border region. But we've seen um, the ways in which um, a lack of access to driver's licenses contributed to immigration enforcement um, throughout New York State and throughout the country, really. Yeah. And you mentioned other states have passed laws um, that um, allow access to driver's license for undocumented people. Um, it, am I correct? I, I think Vermont was one of those states. And wasn't that a lot of uh, partially due to organizing by farm worker groups? Yeah. Our, the, and Migrant Justice led that campaign. They're another mm. member of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Oh. Absolutely. Interesting. Um, so we're, we're kind of running out of time. Um, I want to, um, I'm thinking, you know, I, we've been talking a lot about, a lot about issues that farm workers face. Um, I want to just kind of shift a little before we go and talk a little bit about um, what people can do. Um, and so I'm wondering if each of you just, you're, you're both working on these issues from kind of different angles. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about what an average person can do to support fair wages and better working conditions for farm workers. You want to start, Suzanne? <laughs> sure. Um, before I delve into that too, yeah. um, in detail, I, I also want to mention that, you know, there, are, there is um, a large sort of portion of the population of agricultural workers and other food workers that um, are ununionized and or don't even have access to uh, centers like Emma's. Mm. Um, and uh, there's also in increasingly we see um, farm and food processing production also happening in the prison system. Mm. Um, and there's at least 30,000 uh, prisoners that are engaged in um, in uh, food, uh, in farming or food production yeah. um, throughout the U.S. prison system. And they recently had, I think, a coordinated prisoner's strike. I saw um, that, yeah. And I was so surprised ago. by that yes. number of workers in food in the prison system. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, we, we teamed up with one of the coalitions that were part of the Heal Food Alliance and issued a statement in support of that strike because um, we saw it um, as directly sort of related to... Um, the rights that we are trying to uphold also as the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Um, and, you know, it's connected also to this question of racial justice. And as, you know, you kind of heard us say today, um, you know, the lack of rights for farm workers is directly rooted in the racist history of this country. Right. Um, and so it's important for us to make those connections. And, you know, when we issued that statement, we encouraged our allies and other organizations to write similar statements. And we sort of gave some suggestions for um, what folks can do to support that strike. And mm. simil similarly, outside of the prison system, everywhere else that workers are engaged in campaigns, um, we encourage um, our allies to learn more um, about those campaigns and then see um, where they can be supportive. And that might be um, coming out to a f panel, a forum. It might be um, coming out to city council hearings or, or um, 
Department of Labor hearings where they're discussing different issues. It might be also um, becoming more aware of the products um, that um, some of our organizations might be calling for a boycott of because mm-hmm. of worker conditions. Um, and I think that you know you could share our website and the website of our different member organizations as um, a way to learn more about those campaigns in New York State and all over the country. Great. I'll just say that we do have a website for the Greenlight campaign, which is our driver's license campaign. If I didn't mention the name of it before, um, you can find it at greenlightnewyork.org if you're in New York State. Um, There are also many other states that have similar campaigns. Um, And Suzanne, do you want to mention some of the other work that you all are doing with the Good Food Purchasing Program or any of the other efforts that are more (laughs) solution-oriented? Sure. Well, the Good Food Purchasing Program is um, its a policy initiative that originated about eight years ago and started out in the West Coast. And basically, it's a systematic approach to um, creating higher standards in the food system for workers, but also higher standards around environmental sustainability and nutrition, animal welfare, and supporting local economies. And mm. so... It calls upon cities and sometimes counties and maybe in the future states to adopt a policy um, that would basically um, mandate that any food purchased by city agencies, state or county agencies, um, come from vendors and suppliers that are adhering to very high standards Mm. of the five values that I mentioned. Um, And... It's been passed in L.A. and Oakland and in San Francisco and in Chicago and in Cook County. And and particularly in L.A. where it was first passed, we've already seen um, very sort of positive impacts um, on the environment. And it's been used as a tool to support worker efforts. It was used, we were able to use it as leverage to keep a company like Tyson out of the contracts because of high rates of abuse uh, in their factories, for example. Um, and um, and we're currently uh, working on adopting um, GFPP um, policy in New York City and in Boston and in Washington, D.C. and in Buffalo. And um, we're in the process of uh, building a coalition within the five sectors that I've mentioned. And, you know, we're working with city agencies to um, see that through. Right. And that's huge because those agencies are huge institutional purchasers, right? So the volume of food that you're getting, you know. The only other institution that spends more money on food procurement than New York City is the U.S. military. Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) I think this kind of like circles really nicely back to the report, actually, um, which kind of signals some of the ways that private sector actors, including consumers, can really influence the rights and um, and uh, of agricultural workers by using those kinds of market the market power the consumer demand um, to promote increased protections and accountability and there are a lot of different models for how that can work. Um, I would say they're most effective when they're really driven by um, by workers and workers mm. having direct involvement in that accountability. But I would also say that we I think we need to bear in mind that the private sector and consumer based campaigns are not a replacement for 
um, state protections, right? And that that it's often a very effective strategy for getting people involved and educating folks, but we have to look at both sides, right? We have to try to look at um, how states can do what they need to do, right, which is what this report is all about, right. um, to really um, create systemic protections for workers and meaningful enforcement. So I think these are things that have to complement each other, cannot be seen as, um, you know, uh, as as in and of themselves um, addressing the full scope of the problem. Absolutely. Right. Well, I think that is a great note to end on. Thank you, Suzanne and Emma, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the thank invitation. You. Uh, pleasure. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.